Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa and by Stuart Weir. And on this week's show, we take a look at the draw for the quarterfinals of the CAF Champions League and Confederation Cup, with some great clashes lined up. Also, we look at the problems at the troubled African giants Zamalek of Egypt and DR Congo's TP Mazembe. And we speak to Frank Simon, a French sports journalist who's regarded as a great authority in African football. A few years later, I was able to meet with them. Uh, Tom Ancono, the goalkeeper, Joseph-Antoine Bell, uh, Roger Miller became a friend to me. As coming up later, also Stuart analyzes the sackings of Graham Potter and Frank Lampard in the English Premier League. Uh, first, a quick word on the CAF African Schools Football Championship. South Africa hosting the inaugural continental finals of this new competition taking place in Durban. The four-day event ends on Saturday with boys and girls tournaments. This an initiative to develop youth football on the continent. Well, now, last weekend, the group stages of the CAF Champions League and the Confederation Cup ended, and in the Champions League, seven of the eight quarter-finalists were already decided, and ten-time champions Al-Athli of Egypt managed to squeeze into the last eight with an impressive 3-0 win at home to Al-Hilal of Sudan, taking second place ahead of Al-Hilal on head-to-head record. So the quarter-final draw was made on Wednesday, and C.R. Belua's dad of Algeria will play Mamelodi Sundowns of South Africa. J.S. Kabali of Algeria play Esperance of Tunisia. Al-Athli are up against Raja Casablanca of Morocco in a big, big tie. And Simba of Tanzania will play the reigning champions Widad Casablanca of Morocco. Uh, so the usual North African dominance there, Ida, with six of the eight quarter-finalists from North Africa. It continues, Steve. As you've said there, only Simba and the Sundowns represent sub-Saharan Africa. And Simba and the Algerian champion, C.R. Belouizdad, are the only two teams in the last eight who have yet to win the Champions League. I do feel, though, that Simba is operating at a very decent level, Steve. I mean, the club has gradually risen to regularly compete at the quarterfinal level of African football, you know, and is now a club that's taken seriously around the continent. I mean, they got to the quarters of the Champions League two seasons ago. They got to the Confederation quarters last year. And here they are again. I mean, they are holding fort for sub-Saharan Africa and specifically... East Africa, which in all honesty, hasn't always been known for its football prowess. The Tanzanian club will be looking to make the semifinals for the first time. But separately, I would like to have an I told you moment here. (laughs) Remember a few weeks ago when Al Ali was in a really bad way and you wondered whether the club would make it out of the group stage. And I said one thing that Al-Ali are Champions League specialists who would find a way through. And look, sure enough, it wasn't pretty, but they squeezed past. I actually think, and this can be arguable, I guess, but it's more forgivable for Zamalek to bow out at the group stage than Al-Ali. I mean, we're talking record time champions here. 
Remember, Al Ali didn't have the best group stage last season as well, but they still went all the way to the final. So there are more interesting dynamics in this quarterfinal stage. Al Ali, they face Raja. In the exact same stage, they faced off last season as well, the last eight. Now, the Egyptians took it over the Moroccans then. So Raja, I'm sure, will be looking to avenge that. And it does have to be said, Steve, that Raja do look the more sure-footed of the two coming into this, you know, while Al Ali have definitely struggled, as we've said there. Raja cruised through unbeaten. They won five and drew one. Shifting to Masandawana, and well, it's been quarterfinal exit the last three seasons for them, so they're definitely looking to do better. The Algerian team, well, I don't think that's one to be underestimated. And if they do, it really could be a banana skin moment for them. And if the Sundowns are to repeat their 2016 success, then it will not be easy for them because if they do away with the Algerians at this stage, then it just might be the defending champions waiting for them in the next. Right, an exciting draw in the CAF Champions League. And yes, you were right to say that Al-Akhli would make it through to the quarterfinals. Uh, they start on the 21st of this month. Uh, the CAF Confederation Cup quarterfinal draw was made as well on Wednesday. Egypt's pyramids will play South Africa's Marumo Gallants, U.S. Monastir of Tunisia, up against Asek Mimosas of Ivory Coast. Algerian side USM Algier will play A.S. Farabat of Morocco. And Nigeria as Rivers United playing young Africans of Tanzania. First legs on the 23rd of this month. Now, there are two continental giants of note who've had disappointing showings. In the Champions League, five-time champions Zamalek of Egypt went out at the group stage, finishing third in their group. And in the Confederation Cup, TP Mazembe of DR Congo, also five-time African champions, finished bottom of their group with one win and five defeats. Uh, Quite a decline for these two, Ida. Steve, it's also Zamalek's third consecutive group stage exit. I mean, when it rains, it pours. And Zamalek, for one, has really, really been going through it. The fans even staging a protest in one of the games. Now, instead of their usual white, around 150 Zamalek fans, they dressed in all black, sat in formation in the stands to make a giant angry face and then maintained this position throughout the game, clearly sending out a message. Zamalek won that game, by the way, but the fans, they really didn't care because according to them, the problems of the team and the club go well beyond what was a rare win in current circumstances. Steve, the fans feel that the board doesn't represent them. And it's been one thing after another. And it has been reflecting on the pitch. They are fifth in the league. These are defending champions we're talking about. The latest development is that the entire coaching staff was fired and four players suspended. And don't forget that they briefly terminated the contract of their Portuguese coach back in January before reinstatement. So as you can see, a lot of indecision, a lot of back and forth, and it ultimately does not look good. Zamalek President Mansour, well, he has just finished serving a one-month prison sentence, and this was after slandering the chairman of Al-Ali, Mahmoud El-Khatib. Mansour is also a politician. He's a former MP. 
and he had been charged a while ago, but he had been using parliamentary immunity to protect himself. All in all, Steve, Zamalek needs to get its act together. Now, that's easier said than done, but there might yet be a bit more upheaval before the club finds its footing again. As for TP Mazembe, well, their issue is quite specific. You see, the team has never been able to separate itself from its owner, Moise Katumbi. Now, he and the club have been synonymous, which has its downside, has to be said, because when he turned his attention towards vying for Congo presidency, then the focus that he had on the club for such a long time, well, it shifted. And with all the drama surrounding his bid for presidency, you know, he had charges against him filed. He had to flee the country into exile. And this vacuum has negatively impacted the club in a way that it hasn't managed to recover from. An interesting similarity is that Mortada Mansour also had a shot at the Egyptian presidency, albeit quite a long time ago, around 2014. But these are two clubs, as we can see, another similarity that have become synonymous with the men at the top, almost, if you ask some people, almost inextricably linked. Yeah, and especially so in the case of a TP Mazembe with Moise Katumbi. Thanks so much, Ida. This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And now to our interview with Frank Simon, a French sports journalist who's regarded as a great authority in African football. Now, Frank worked for France Football Magazine for many years. He's been covering African football for more than 30 years as a reporter and a commentator, and he's travelled all over the continent. He's known for his in-depth research and statistics on the African game. Well, I met up with Frank at the CHAN, the African Nations Championship in Algeria earlier this year. He was in the French language commentary team. I was in the English commentary team. I first asked Frank how his love for African football developed. It just started when I was a, a kid at school, you know, in uh, in Paris, in the suburbs where I, where I grew up. I was surrounded by uh, young kids from Africa, uh, people from Congo, Cameroon, Benin, uh, and obviously from North Africa. And uh, some of my my friends at that time, they would uh, they really inspired me. They talked to me about uh, uh, the teams, the clubs in Congo, Kara, Braza, uh, Kanon, Yaoundé. Uh, and for the Algerians, obviously, they were so crazy about uh, GS Kabili, Jet Tiziuzu at that time. And then we had the World Cup with Cameroon and Algeria. So we all we would all gather and talk about uh, these games. So yeah, it started well, at a young age. Also, uh, you cannot ignore the fact that uh, I had a nanny, had a lady who took care of me when I was a young kid. Me and my sister, she she's from Mali. Uh, and uh, she was like my second mom when I was a kid. And also it was really inspiring, you know, to have a... Uh, such uh, an African mom uh, preparing food for you and she was very kind and she had she was very young she has five kids and we were doing uh, all kinds of of things you know at home and and yeah so very at a very young age I was already you know my mind was uh, in Africa so to say and uh, after that yeah um, when I became a teenager I was uh, as I was telling you I wanted to follow the the African football stage, it was complicated. I know internet, nothing, just uh, papers, uh, old uh, magazines. But in France, we have been always uh, lucky to have great players. 
from Cameroon, Senegal, Congo. So yeah, I was, I had a collection of stickers, Panini stickers. So um, I was always looking at these guys. Okay, this one is from Cameroon, Congo, where? And then we had the AFCON. We had the first game from the AFCON on television on the French TV. I think in, back in 1984, I was so, so in love with African football. I remember, uh, uh, Mozambique first time in uh, 86 with Chiquinho Conde and he's now a coach but uh, one of the first names I remember from uh, from Mozambique and all the Cameroonians and it's strange because I was uh, a teenager but few years later I was able to meet with them uh, Tom Ancono the goalkeeper Joseph Antoine Bell uh, Roger Miller became a friend to me uh, when my daughter was born, he was in Paris and he wanted to bring uh, flowers to, to the mother of my daughter. So can you imagine? And uh, maybe 10 or 15 years before, he was like uh, an idol to me. So uh, very quickly, I was uh, into African football and I became uh, a sports writer. I started uh, in uh, 1989. So one joy about African football is that it's it's easier to have relationships with the players, to get to know them, and you know many star players very well. You mentioned Roger Miller, the Cameroon legend. Tell us about some of the other African football legends that uh, you've known over the years. I crossed uh, the, the path, the, the road of many of them, of course, just like you, uh, George Weir, for instance. And George, uh, I, I even went to his house because... Uh, I was doing interviews for the BBC French service, but sometimes I could get some words in, in English uh, from him. Uh, and uh, eventually, when he, wa- he, he was a candidate for the, for the election the first time in 2000, 2005, I think, I went to, to Liberia, I went to Monrovia for, for the election. And suddenly I was in, in his other house, the one in Monrovia. So, yeah, uh, of course, uh, George Weah, players like uh, the late Rashidi Ekini from Nigeria, JJ Okocha, because he played in for Paris Saint-Germain, and, and, and I live in Paris, uh, Sunday Olise also. Uh, many Algerians, Moroccans, players that I know from, from Zimbabwe as well. Uh, Zambian players, South African players. Too many, it's difficult to mention all of them, but you can imagine that all the players that were involved on the European stage and African stage since the, the early 90s, I, I met with them. Some of them became good friends. I'm also looking people like uh, Patrick Mboma, uh, for instance, the Cameroonian who won the, the Olympic Games uh, in Sydney. Uh, some of them, I, I was also lucky to work with them uh, as, a, as a consultant, as a commentator. So, yeah, it's, it's always nice, but so many, so many of them and good memories as well. Too many stories to, to tell you. <laughs> oh, wow. I was talking there to Frank Simon, who's met so many stars of African football over the years. Uh, Frank is a French sports journalist who's regarded as a great authority on the African game. And more from him next week on his travels uh, around the continent. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart, on the latest sackings in the English Premier League. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA, and you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download the app, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. 
Let's go to social media now. Last week we asked which team has impressed you the most so far in Africa Cup of Nations qualifying. We had some exciting qualifiers recently with the third and fourth rounds of group games with Morocco, Algeria, Senegal, South Africa, Tunisia and Burkina Faso all qualifying. Egypt had two wins over Malawi. Guinea-Bissau won 1-0 away to Nigeria in a massive shock. And Namibia had a famous 2-1 win over Cameroon, while the Gambia beat Mali 1-0 in a game played in Morocco. So we asked who's impressed you the most so far. And we start in the Gambia with Alison Kamara, who says that, yeah, it's the Gambia for me. After that 1-0 defeat to Mali in the first leg in Mali, the Scorpions came back with strength to sting the Malians with a single goal from defender Omar Kale in that return match, moving us to third in the group with games to play against Sudan and Congo, says Alassane. Uh, Belong Baji in the Gambia says, I'm impressed by the Scorpions. Uh, despite not being very responsive and being in the right place at the right time, they were passing the ball around well, says Balong. Kobena Junior Adinkra says, for me it's uh, Namibia beating Cameroon 2-1. And uh, Rapken Adams Musaope says, yeah, it's Namibia picking up four points from Cameroon with a win and a draw. Cameroon just getting one point out of a possible six against Namibia, says Rapken. And Patrick Chali in Zambia says, yeah, that was a big, big upset, Namibia beating Cameroon. Also impressed with Namibia's brave warriors was Sideko Suno in the Gambia, saying, for me, they did really well, great touches and movement off the ball. And Gero is a rocket in midfield, and Peter Shalulile up front was superb against the indomitable Lions. Overall, the whole team played well. And I'm proud of them, says Sideko. Then Bala Arsenal in the Gambia says, To me, the team that impressed most is Guinea-Bissau. The underdogs managing to beat Nigeria 1-0 away. And Collins Ipam in Sierra Leone says, For me, it's Guinea-Bissau with that shock win over Nigeria. Gershom Zamawa says, for me, it's Zambia with their performance. I think they will qualify into the next round. Uh, yes, Zambia getting home and away wins over Lesotho. And finally, Godfrey Mugula in Uganda says, Uganda silenced the noisy Tanzanians. <laughs> uh, well, yes, uh, Uganda did win 1-0 away to Tanzania, but uh, four days earlier, they'd lost 1-0 at home to Tanzania. So uh, that fierce rivalry will continue there. Well, thanks so much to everybody who got in touch. Always great to hear from you here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Next to our European football expert Stuart Weir in the UK and the firing of English Premier League managers continues. It's up to 12 now. Brendan Rodgers at Leicester and Graham Potter at Chelsea the last to go with a Frank Lampard taking over now to the end of the season with the Blues. What an unbelievable season. Let's start with Brenton Rodgers. I have a lot of sympathy for Brenton Rodgers, who had a good track record as a manager everywhere he's been. Watford, Reading, Swansea City, four years at Liverpool. One season he was second, just two points behind Manchester City. Three times he won the Scottish title with Celtic, and in his five seasons at Leicester he won the FA Cup, twice had them finishing fifth, and was never out of the top half. The problem is that Leicester City have now dropped into the bottom three. If you go back to the 11th of February, Leicester beat Tottenham 4-1, a great result. But since then, in the league, Leicester have played six and lost five and drawn one. And they've been knocked out of the FA Cup by a championship team. Since the World Cup, if you did a league table, 
Leicester would be bottom of it. They picked up just eight points in 13 games, less than anyone else. But this season, Leicester have lost their legendary goalkeeper Casper Schmeichel and also sold Wesley Fofana to Chelsea. They've made no significant signings. And then there's Jamie Vardy, that magnificent striker. 154 league goals for Leicester. But he's now 36. He's only started 11 games and only scored one goal. But they have not brought in anyone to replace him or anyone to replace Fofana. That leaves poor old Brenton Rodgers with a weaker squad than last season, but still expected to get the same level of results. Take Saturday's defeat. Leicester City took the lead against Crystal Palace. Palace equalised with a freak goal when a shot hit the crossbar and bounced against the back of the goalkeeper's legs and into the net. And then, with four minutes of stoppage time gone, Palace got the winning goal. In all probability, if Leicester had not lost, Rodgers would still be in a job. But I think he has been a magnificent manager who acts with dignity, and I'd expect him to have a job offer quite soon. And Graham Potter has gone too. Now, if you go back to the 16th of October, Chelsea won away at Aston Villa, leaving Chelsea fourth in the league table and Aston Villa 16th. But fast forward five months, the scoreline is reversed and Aston Villa are now ninth, with Chelsea 11th. The Chelsea team that Potter inherited have finished in the top four in the Premier League for the previous four seasons and so to find themselves in the bottom half of the table is just not good enough. Potter was a manager in Sweden for eight years, then Swansea City for one season. He had three excellent seasons at Brighton. But despite his success at Brighton, I think moving to Chelsea was just a massive step up for him. And when N'Golo Kante came on as a second-half substitute last Saturday, he was the 32nd player that Graham Potter had picked for Chelsea. 32 players. Potter started well, winning his first five games, but then he's only won another seven all season, and Chelsea this season, under his leadership, have lost 11 times. For me, Potter always looked a strange choice for Chelsea because he had no experience of working with players of that calibre, nor had he managed a club expecting to win trophies. At one level, to fire a manager after seven months seems ridiculous. You could ask, what on earth could Potter achieve among the chaos of all those players? But it seemed to me that the new American owners have just come to the conclusion they appointed the wrong manager and it was better to admit the mistake and take action immediately, rather than giving Potter the benefit of the doubt. It's been a difficult two years for Chelsea, with Roman Abramovich forced to sell the club because of sanctions imposed on him due to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then the new American owners supported Potter making significant funds available to him in the January transfer window, only to see the team get worse. I've never met Graham Potter, but he looks, from what I have seen of him, a very decent human being. But at the same time, he just looked out of his depth at Chelsea. Using 32 players is a clear indication that he struggled to know what his best team is. The firing of Potter, though, Steve, illustrates the madness of Premier League finance. Because this season, Chelsea have signed 17 players at a cost of $600 million. They signed Potter on a five-year contract 
with more than $12 million a year, and they paid Brighton $25 million to release him from his contract there. And just six months later, they decide they've appointed the wrong manager. One final thought, Steve. Former top striker and now journalist Tony Cascarino made an interesting suggestion this week that clubs should only be allowed to hire one new manager per year. That would be an interesting development. Well, yes. We're asking for your thoughts on this on social media this week. Uh, Should clubs only be allowed to change the coach once a season? Uh, So with 12 managers fired already in the English Premier League this season, there's that suggestion that clubs should only be allowed to appoint a new manager once per season. Uh, Chelsea and Southampton have fired their manager twice this season, so they're on to their third boss already. So what do you think? Should clubs only be allowed to change the coach once per season? Uh, You can go to our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Should clubs only be allowed to change the coach once a season? And uh, elsewhere, Stuart, interesting uh, with uh, the Muslim month of Ramadan on, that uh, plays being stopped to allow Muslim players to break their fast. Yes, it's an innovation this season, Steve, that Premier League games can be paused so that Muslim players who've been fasting during Ramadan can have a a drink and something to eat. Clubs only need to request in advance. And, for example, when Everton played Tottenham recently, the referee paused the game after 26 minutes so that Decorey, Onana and Edris Gay could have some energy supplements uh, at the pit side. I think that's an excellent innovation. Yes, sure, and action continues this weekend. Arsenal eight points clear of Manchester City. The Gunners playing away to Liverpool on Sunday. Last weekend, the top two, Manchester City and Arsenal, both won 4-1. And that was on the 1st of April, a date Americans write as 4-1. Liverpool starting 11 against Manchester City included 10 of the team which had beaten Manchester United 7-0. But against City, they were blown away. And City were without Erling Haaland, who's injured. But his replacement, Alvarez, scored and led the line beautifully. It was a bad week for Liverpool, taking the lead at Manchester City before losing 4-1 and then playing out a 0-0 draw with Chelsea. Never looking like scoring. But I'm glad to report that Jurgen Klopp has not lost a sense of humour. Manchester City's Rodri was shown a yellow card and immediately committed another foul. Klopp was asked if he thought that Rodri should have been sent off. And Klopp replied, I really don't know. But in any case, I'm not sure we'd have won even against ten men. (laughs) And how about this, Steve, for a strange statistic? Liverpool have beaten Bournemouth 9-0, Manchester United 7-0. And in the Champions League have won 7-1 against Rangers. But in their other 37 games, their goal difference is negative. It was also a good week for Newcastle United. A 2-0 win over Manchester United and then winning 5-1 away to West Ham to move them up to third. Man U followed the defeat at Newcastle with a 1-0 win over Brentford. But Man U have lost 8 of their last 18 games they played on a Sunday but none of their 27 games played on other days of the week. So, do you think they could ask the FA Premier League so that they don't have to play on Sundays in future? 
But one disturbing fact about Manchester United's defeat at Newcastle is this was the sixth game they have played away to one of the Premier League top nine, and they've lost all six. Last weekend, West Ham beat Southampton with a goal to nil, scored by Naif Aguerd from Morocco. And that goal actually showed VAR at its best. There were three West Ham players in offside positions when Aguerd headed home a free kick. It must have been incredibly difficult for the assistant referee to distinguish those four players, and VAR got the right decision. Finally, Steve, last weekend, Roy Hodgson at Crystal Palace, aged 75, became the oldest manager to win a Premier League game, and on the same day, Neil Warnock, a mere 74, became the oldest manager to win a championship game. Oh, well, so they still have what it takes then. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Uh, So Liverpool playing Arsenal on Sunday. On Saturday, we have Man City away to Southampton, Manchester United playing Everton, Newcastle away to Brentford. And next Tuesday and Wednesday, we have the first legs of the quarterfinals of the UEFA Champions League. So it's a busy time. Manchester City playing Bayern Munich, Benfica against Inter Milan, Real Madrid playing Chelsea, and AC Milan against Napoli in an all-Italian quarter-final. Well, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa and from Stuart Weir, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.